The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. The word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. <coughs> Excuse me. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. We're here this morning to study in the word of God. <clears throat> we are studying in Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. It has been some time since we have had one of our Galatians classes, so we are going to do a little bit of a review to start with and then pick up where we left off and move on from there. Before we do any of that, it's imperative that we make sure that we are properly prepared for the study of the things of God, His Word. Uh, This entails confession of sin if needed so that we might be filled with and under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. It also requires us as Believer priests in the dispensation of the church to prepare our hearts for the study with humility and by yielding to the Holy Spirit. Shall we pray? Most gracious and merciful and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for this blessing of another opportunity to meet here at the church, the opportunity we have to gather together for fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, the opportunity we have to sit down under the ministry of your word, the Holy Spirit who helps us understand these things. Father, we ask that as we hear your word, we would be humble enough to receive it implanted that we would allow the Word to dwell richly within our souls so that we will, in fact, be transformed by the renewing of the mind and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in His most precious and beautiful name. Amen. Well, I was thankful for the visit uh, that we had recently from Dan and Pat Hill and uh, appreciative of the crowd that we had out on Wednesday night for their ministry report and uh, Bible lesson. I was also uh, grateful for the opportunity they stayed at our house, the opportunity that we had to have the fellowship and discuss matters of spirituality and theological things and such. That was a real blessing. And one of the things that that came out of that was... uh, Pastor Hill was talking about our ongoing faith, and we were very much like-minded that uh, we are saved by grace through faith, and we live by grace through faith. As we have received him, so also we walk in him. So uh, Colossians 2, 6. So it's a very important concept, but one of the things that he highlighted was that, uh, yes, our faith indeed is in uh, Jesus Christ, no question about that. But as believers in this dispensation who have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, our faith and trust also is in the Holy Spirit. And often our focus is even in that direction. He has been given to us as the one who has to help us to be sanctified uh, in our daily walk and uh, also, you know, to make our way through this existence that we have in this lost and dying world. So our faith is 
in the Holy Spirit. And that's one of the things I try to encourage before every Bible class is that we rely upon the Holy Spirit to help us to understand these things that we're studying. So I thought that was interesting that he was talking about the focus of our faith being on the Holy Spirit. I'm definitely going to be uh, chewing on that as uh, a doctrinal concept. Speaking of the Spirit, we, uh, we looked last time, it's been a while now, but we looked last time at the fruit of the Spirit. And we're going to do a, a brief review of what we looked at and then move on from there. Uh, first of all, the word for fruit is karpos. It means fruit. Uh, it can describe literal fruit or be used figuratively. Uh, so we have scriptural references where this word is used to describe uh, actual fruit of trees, but it's also used figuratively quite a bit in the New Testament. Uh, here, it's clearly a figurative use describing what is produced by the Spirit, uh, and he uses it in contrast uh, to the ergon, that is the works of the flesh that we saw back in verse 19. So we have the works or the deeds of the flesh, and then we have the fruit of the Spirit. Those two are given in contrast. Uh, this contrast highlights what is produced by the energy of the flesh, again, sin and human good coming from the energy of the flesh, as opposed to what is manifest in the believer through the divine power of the Spirit. So we have the fruit of the Spirit, obviously divine good. We Instead of human effort, human good, uh, which, of course, Satan would love us to be engaged in human good activities uh, rather than doing what it is that God would have us to do and and uh, producing fruit. Uh, obviously, the Spirit's the one that produces that fruit in us and also the, uh, the works that he's given for us to do, the divine good as opposed to human good. Another contrast is that this word is in the singular, while ergon was plural. We have the deeds, the deeds of the flesh, and we have the fruit of the Spirit, uh, the sin nature can produce one or more sins. It can produce for different forms of human good. I'll add that. While the Spirit produces all of the qualities listed here. In other words, that's the key. When you have it in the plural like you have for the deeds, that's a list of things. And you may or may not be engaged in, in those activities when you're walking in the flesh. But when you're walking in the Spirit, and the Spirit is uh, <clears throat> the one that's producing in us all of these things, are manifest, and that's why it's in the singular. It's one thing. It's all of these things encapsulated in one. So as we walk by means of the Spirit, we see all of these things being produced in us. That's a big difference between the two. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> the fruit of the Spirit is manifest in believers when they walk by means of the Spirit. It goes back to verse 16, which, by the way, let me go ahead and do that real quickly. This is the translation leading up to this. Now, I say walk by means of the Spirit, and you will definitely not carry out the lust of the flesh. For the flesh has desires contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit contrary to the flesh. For these are enemies of one another, with the result that you may not do the things that you want to do. But since you are being led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the products of the flesh are evident. I've translated it as products. That's ergon. Uh, deeds, works, products of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, moral impurity, debauchery, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, discord, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, heresies, envying, drunken sprees, excessive partying, and things like these, of which I tell you in advance, just as I have previously warned you, that those who continuously engage in such things will not inherit 
the kingdom of God. And that's what leads up to our, our verse that we're looking at here. And remember what we were talking about there is somebody who is constantly engaged in those things. That's kind of indicative maybe of someone who's not even born again. And that's the key in that particular passage. Remember, but we've been washed. We've been cleaned. Those of us who have believed in Jesus, we've been washed. We've been cleaned. We've been sanctified. The products of the flesh result when believers give in to the lust of the flesh. So there's your contrast. When we are walking by means of the Spirit, we are going to bear forth the fruit of the Spirit. When we are walking in the lusts of the flesh, then the products of the flesh will result. The word for love, we're going to go through the list here. The word for love is agape. That is love or affection. This is one of five types of love that can be expressed in the Koine Greek. Uh, first of all, we have love that's based on compatibility. That's philos. It's friend, often called friendship love. It's a compatibility-based love. In other words, the individual that you love is very similar in many ways. There's a compatibility built in. Brotherly love is Philadelphia. That's how we're supposed to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Familial love is storge, love for the family. Uh, romantic or sexual love is Eros. I hope you don't think that these are all the same kinds of love. Like I've said before, uh, people say love is love. That's not true. There are different kinds of love. The agape love, which is mentioned here, is a selfless, integrity-based love. In other words, based on you, not in any way uh, upon the merits of the object. This love is to be expressed toward all people, including our enemies and others we do not like that's why this is the key to this, this type of love, is that as we have this kind of love, uh, we are supposed to love those things that are unlovable. In other words, the merits of the object, the lovability, the likability of the object is not in view here. It's based on you and your ability to love. And so this is how we're supposed to love others. Uh, other believers, we can love other believers with this kind of love. We can, we can have Philadelphia love. For other believers, we can have philos love for other believers, but this kind of love is supposed to be uh, an overriding love that's always there, regardless of the lovability of the object. And we are even to love our enemies, unbelievers, enemies, others we do not like. It's supposed to be encapsulated with this kind of love. Now, interestingly, this this kind of love, in its perfect form, is uh, the kind of love that God manifests in us. But what, say, if we have this kind of love, right, based on who we are and what we are, we have this kind of love toward the world. The scriptures tell us that's not a good thing. Love of the world is a bad thing, right? But let's say, based on who and what we are, we love the world. Even if the world's not lovable, but we do. We love the world, right? Well, that says something about who we are, right? What our, what our soul is made up of if we have that kind of love. So you got to realize that we often, we most of the time think of agape love in the positive sense because of what God is doing in us, the way he's transforming us, the things that are happening to us, and then the love we can have for others. But you can, if you have this kind of love for the wrong things, then it says something about uh, what you are <clears throat> in your soul. The word, this word being placed at the beginning of the list places emphasis on that kind of love. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit is born within the operational sphere of agape love. I talk about this all the time, the operational sphere. In other words, that's how we are to function in our daily walk is within the sphere of love. And so our thoughts, our words, our actions are all supposed to be shaped 
by agape love, and we're talking about the agape love that comes from, from God as he is working in us. The word joy, kara, means gladness or joy. This describes a happiness which comes from God and is not dependent upon circumstances. Very important. Christians are to have joy. And the joy, the Christian joy that we are supposed to have is not circumstance dependent. We're supposed to be able to have joy even in the midst of circumstances that don't seem joyful. If we look at, uh, if we look at James chapter 1, consider it all joy. Even when you're facing various trials, I'm paraphrasing. So what you're going through, the trials you're going through are, are not necessarily joyful trials, are they? They could be extremely difficult trials and very, um, if you allowed them to be, they could be discouraging and so on and so forth. But yet we are supposed to be able to consider it all joy in the midst of that, even when you encounter various trials. And by the way, that word various just, just doesn't mean uh, a different kinds. It means that there's multiple trials at once. Have you ever noticed that? A lot of times we're not just dealing with one thing. We're dealing with multiple things. So joy in the Christian life is supposed to be independent of our circumstances. Word for peace, Irene, that's where we get the, the name Irene. Uh, it means peace or harmony. Uh, Paul's use of this word is based upon the meaning of shalom, which is in, from the Hebrew. Um, that word is used to describe harmony between two individuals, to be peace with other, other humans, but it's also peace with God. Uh, here the word is describing uh, the inner tranquility of the believer that comes from God. Uh, we looked at Philippians 4, Sam, uh, 7, that peace that surpasses understanding. We're supposed to be able to have a peace within ourselves. It can describe peace between individuals. But in this case, it's describing that inner tranquility. Again, it relates to the joy, <coughs> the joy, the contentment, this peace that we can have. That surpasses understanding. Patience, that's a tough one to teach. People don't like to, like to hear that one. It's macrothemia. It means forbearance or patience. And the key to this word is that it describes the ability to bear up under provocation, not simply a waiting. And a lot of times people think of patience as just, you know, you're waiting. I'm going to sit and wait and tap my finger on the table while I wait. And, you know, <clears throat> I'm at uh, I'm at the... Department of Transportation waiting to do something there, and I'm in a line, and I'm tapping my finger, looking at my phone, waiting. That's not what we're talking about with this word. Macrothemia means that you're, you're dealing with provocation. You're going through circumstances which are uh, uncomfortable, and you're able to bear up. <clears throat> That's the key. So patience, I would say, is related to long-suffering, right? It's related to long-suffering, but they're not exactly the same concepts. Long-suffering brings in that same concept, the idea that you're going through difficulties or suffering and you're able to, to bear it. Long-suffering, actually, the, the key with long-suffering is that it actually brings in the concept of a long period of time. Remember, God is long-suffering. He puts, what, puts up with us way longer than then uh, really we deserve, right? And so the long-suffering brings in that additional concept of time with it, yeah. Kindness. <clears throat> Christates. Christates means generosity or kindness. It describes kindness in action. 
uh, through being helpful and generous towards other words. In other words, it's not just a it's not just a soul thing. I've talked about that before. There's different words <clears throat> that are <clears throat> used. For example, we looked at study on anger, and we looked at the different words for that. And one of them is talking about the anger that you have in your soul. Another word that we have in the in the Greek actually speaks to that being expressed, right? Anger being expressed, and it's often translated as rage in the in the New Testament, right? Anger expressed. Um, similarly, we can have different words for kindness. The idea of a a kindness that's a, a, an aspect of who you are in your soul. But this word, uh, macro, uh, excuse me, krestates actually speaks of, um, speaks of kindness in action. You're actually putting it into action. You're helpful to others. You're generous towards others. <clears throat> Goodness. That's agathosune. Agathosune, I've got to put the emphasis on the right syllable, which means goodness, again, or generosity. This has a generosity concept to it as well. This word describes a righteous moral quality displayed in a concern for the welfare of others. You see how these two words, no surprise, they're put back to back because they dovetail, right? You have a righteous uh, moral quality. Where does that come from? It comes from God, right? And that is uh, displayed in a concern for the welfare of others and might be Indeed, shown through your kindness, right? Your helpfulness and your generosity towards others. So goodness and kindness go together. We have faithfulness. Uh, pistis it means either faith or faithfulness. It, this word's used here to describe the faithful walk of the believer, which can only come from God who is faithful. If you think about it, are we going to, apart from God, are we going to be faithful? Uh, no. Apart from God, we are not. Apart from God, we are not trustworthy, not faithful. Uh, God's faithfulness is on display in and through us as we walk in him. Very important. Gentleness, self-control against such things there is no law. Word for gentleness, prautes. <clears throat> prautes means considerateness, gentleness. This word is, 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 a, is a word key. The key here is based in humility. Uh, it does not describe weakness. Gentleness does not describe weakness. It describes a quality in us that comes through humility, a considerateness, a gentleness. It's not something that's <clears throat> exclusive to females only. This is a quality of true men. A true man of, the, a man, a man of God will be able to display gentleness. Self-control. Engratea. Ingratea, actually, which means self-control. The word describes restraint of one's emotions, impulses, or desires. Um, play, this placement at the end of this list is done in contrast to the drunken sprees and the ex- excessive partying mentioned at the end of the list of the products of the flesh, right? There's no, there's no, it's not accidental that that was put at the end of the list. In contrast to that, self-control, if we're able to have that control over our impulses, emotions, desires... You know, interestingly, we talk about it with emotions all the time. Of course, the sin nature is the sin nature is something that's in us that is a consequence of the fall. We now have a corrupted, sinful nature, and we struggle against that. But interestingly, emotions emotions were given to us by God from the very beginning. Adam and Eve had emotions; they had that quality of emotions, and God gave it gave us emotions as a blessing, something that enriches our lives. Emotions, if you think about it, if we're, if we're emotionless, that, doesn't that take away some of the flavor, some of the richness of the life that we have? However, comma, very important, 
Emotions are not supposed to be what drives us and leads us to different choices and decisions that we make. Emotions are supposed to be responders. Thought, rational thought, emphasized over and over again in the scriptures in in conjunction with our understanding of God and his righteousness and so on and so forth is supposed to is supposed to drive our decision making processes. Emotions are supposed to be responders. So if you think about it, we are as as part of self control, we're not supposed to allow the emotions to get out of control. Become so emotional that we are irrational. So if we think about those things, it's a very important concept to understand that self-control includes things against like the sin nature, but also against emotions as well. Now, again, how do we have any self-control? That's something that comes from God. On on our own, if we try to have self-control with the energy of the flesh, we're using the flesh to try to control the flesh. That's a recipe for disaster. If you use the strength of God, if you allow the Holy Spirit to help us to have victory over those things, then we can have Self-control, and that's why it's listed as a fruit of the Spirit. The phrase, against such things there is no law, means that no law prohibits any of the qualities listed. Uh, through, uh, excuse me, though law in general is mentioned, the Mosaic law is clearly in view here. So uh, we're going to translate it this way. There is no law that prohibits such things. In other words, uh, these, these qualities, these incredible qualities, these things that are fruit, which comes from the Spirit, that's not prevented by any kind of a law. And he makes that statement on purpose to show that these are all things that are good things and there's no law stopping us from exhibiting these characteristics. Um, It's a snarky comment because he's saying, look, uh, this is not a list of legal legalistic prescriptions. You know what I'm saying? In other words, it's not like he's giving you this list and saying, "Okay, you need to you need to make sure you do all these things. Right. If you check all those things off your list, then, you know, you're being a good Christian. He's not doing that. What he's saying instead is, no, this is something that comes from God. And you need to allow God to be able to do that. As you walk by means of the Spirit, God will produce these things. God, the Holy Spirit, will produce these things. And so don't look at it as a a checklist, a legalistic checklist. Just recognize as a born-again believer that these are things that the Spirit's going to produce in you as you walk by means of the Spirit. This is going to be a product of of what he does in our lives. So he's taking a shot at the Judaizers because they're... You know, they're focused on law and legalistic concepts. And he's saying, look, there's, there's no legalism in any of this. Uh, in other words, believers cannot make themselves acceptable for God but by trying to exhibit these qualities as a product of human effort. And that's what I was just talking about. You can't just try to use the energy of the flesh to produce all these things. That's not how it works. These qualities are manifest in us by the Spirit. I think I just said that. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is new material. New material. The phrase, those who belong to Christ Jesus, is literally those of. That's what it says there, those of Christ Jesus. The idea of belonging to him is implicit here. I like this translation, this translation, those who belong to him. Right? We are Christ's. You can think of it as that way. We are his possession. We belong to him. It's a very good translation. Those who belong to Christ Jesus. The word Jesus here, as you can see, as I've highlighted it, it's in the brackets here in this Nestle text. It is a text question here. It's not in all of the manuscripts. But as I always like to point out, in more than 99% of all the text questions, the meaning of the verse 
does not change either way. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. Does that change it any? No. That's why I say I, I point these out because one of the things I want you to do is if somebody says, well, there's all kinds of, there's all kinds of errors you know, in, the, in the manuscripts or whatever they try to say. If, if they say there's errors in the Bible, first of all, tell them, no, that's, tell them no, that's not true. If you want to talk to them about you know, things in the manuscripts, you can talk about that. There are certain manuscripts where there might be one thing or the other that's different or left out, or in this case, and such, so on and so forth. But I always want you to remember that in almost every case, it makes zero difference to the meaning of the verses. So there's really no, in other words, it's not significant. This is a great example. It says Christ or Christ Jesus. Either way, it's the same. So don't let anybody give you that kind of malarkey. Don't, don't, uh, don't put up with that. The phrase have crucified is an aorist of stauraio, uh, which means to crucify. Uh, the word is used here in the sense of the flesh being disempowered because of this crucifixion. In other words, uh, the flesh has its power taken away through this crucifixion. It's been rendered powerless. We talked about that in Romans, if you remember. Uh, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. The notion of believers crucifying the flesh is due to their association with Christ and his crucifixion, Right? That's where this comes from. The sin nature has not been eradicated. I don't know if you've noticed that, but I certainly have. The sin nature is not gone. It's still there, uh, but it has been judged and rendered powerless. Now, when you say, when I say it's been rendered powerless, then how is it that we have so much trouble with it? And I often give the example. Let me see where I'm going with this here. Um, yeah, we're going to passions next, so I'll come back to this. And my stupid analogy is, if I have, well, we can you actually I can change it to something else. Uh, all right. So we have over here a, a keyboard. Right. And this keyboard is capable of making wonderful music. But right now it's unplugged. So what does it do? Nothing. Right. It's powerless. It doesn't have any power hooked up to it. So that that thing right there cannot make music. It's 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 incapable of it. I guess I could make some percussion sounds, but that doesn't count. Uh, but if I walk over there and I turn on the power to it, what have I done? I've now enabled that thing to make music. So what you want to think of with regard to your sin nature is the plug's been pulled on your sin nature. It doesn't have any power. However, we can volitionally. It's still there. That thing is sitting in the sanctuary, right? So if I walk over and I turn the power on, now what happens when I hit those keys? It makes music. Same thing with our sin nature. It's been unplugged. Effectively through the cross, our sin nature has been unplugged and rendered powerless, but volitionally we can walk over and plug it in. And when we do, our sin nature can do what it has always done. Right? So it's been, power's been cut off to it, but we have the, we have the ability to give power back to it again. And when we do, boom, it does its thing again. It's a volitional choice. When we give in to the lust of the flesh, then it's sin. So we've got to remember that. The word passion. Now, the point here being made, though, <clears throat> the, power, the, power, the power that's been removed from it, the fact that it's been rendered powerless, when we walk by means of the Spirit, we will not carry out, we will definitely not carry out the lust of the flesh. So as we're walking by means of the Spirit, our sin nature has no power over us. Right now we have the word passions here. It's from pathema. Pathema means uh, 
Pathema actually means suffering or misfortune. Actually, it's an interesting word. It refers to suffering 14 times in the New Testament. Romans 8.18. We'll take a look at these, just a few of them. Uh, For I consider the sufferings. That's pathema. The sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is about to be revealed to us. Romans 8.18. 2 Corinthians 1, uh, 5 through 7. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. You notice those translated sufferings over and over there. Colossians 1.24, And I rejoice in my sufferings on your behalf, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in supplying a necessary part of Christ's afflictions. Interesting verse. We looked at that when we studied Colossians. 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11, Consider this salvation the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you made diligent searches and careful inquiries, inquiring into what person or which time period the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Those people had a difficult time understanding how both of those could be true. We talked about that when we studied 1 Peter. However, this word can also be used to mean feelings or passions. And that's how it's used here, but it's used in this sense only here and in Romans 7, 5. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were working in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Now, if you think about it in terms of of this, in a way, it's kind of interesting because the passions, the sinful passions, uh, and, in, and indeed those passions, those sinful passions within us, actually bring bring us suffering, right? There's an aspect of suffering for us that comes from that. As we allow them to control us, we suffer as a result. So it's interesting how they're kind of connected. Uh, the word desires is epithemia, uh, which means desire, a craving, or lust. Uh, we are going to translate it here as lusts, as, as we did back in verse 16. So the passions and lusts. So those sinful passions, I didn't put sinful there, but that's what it's talking about is sinful passions. It's sinful passions and it's lusts. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Uh, As I often do, or almost always do, I should say, when we have the word if in in here, we have to figure out what what kind of if this is. This is a first-class conditional, meaning if, and it is true, and as we have done throughout, we're going to translate it as since. Since we live by the Spirit. Remember, what, who, is, who is Paul talking to here? He's talking to believers. Since we live by the Spirit, we, are, we have been made alive by the Spirit, right? We, we have spiritual life by the Spirit. The word for live is zao, which means to live or be alive. Uh, this word is used of the spiritual life we now have by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So we're going to actually translate it that way. We are spiritually alive. We, as believers, are spiritually alive by means of the Spirit. And that's a dative of means which we've seen before, so we're going to translate it that way. So we are spiritually alive by means of the Spirit. All of us, 
We have spiritual life now. In other words, we're talking about our human spirit is alive by means of the spirit. We have been made spiritually alive by means of the spirit. So therefore, let us also walk by the spirit. The word walk, stoikeo, it means to agree with, to follow or conform. Interestingly, right, what do we have for walk by walk in most of the cases? Peripateo. Remember, we talked about the peripateo, the walk. This is not peripateo here. This is stoikeo. This word means to live in accordance with someone or something considered to be a standard for one's conduct. Think about that for a second. If you have someone or something that we consider to be a standard, we're supposed to, we are supposed to live our lives in accordance with that. I can make a simple argument, and all of you probably can too, that we have a standard that we are to live in accordance with, the, the Word of God is a standard we are to live in accordance with. In this case, it's talking about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit Himself. Therefore, we will translate walk by the Spirit as behave in accordance with the Spirit. So we're going to translate it that way. So since we are spiritually alive by means of the Spirit, let's also behave in accordance with the Spirit. Very important, right? We're supposed to behave every single day in accordance with the Spirit. He is our standard. God has given him to us, and he is the standard by which we are to live by. And what he does in bringing us that standard is he brings to mind what we know from the things of the word. So the word becomes the standard, right? The word is the standard, and that comes through the ministry of the spirit. So <clears throat> this is very important in many aspects, right? Because this is the standard by which we are to walk today is in accordance with the Spirit. What were the, what were the people of Israel supposed to do in terms of their walk? They were supposed to live or behave, if you will, in accordance with the Mosaic Law. Right? That was their standard. They'd been given the Mosaic Law, and that's, that was the standard by which they were to live. Today, in the church, we now are to behave in accordance with the Holy Spirit himself. That raises the bar, does it not? And again, we live to a higher standard, but we've also been equipped to live according to that higher standard. So we're supposed to behave in accordance with the Spirit. Another thing I'll point out that's very important about this kind of a concept is if you believe you're being guided and directed to do some sort of an activity in your Christian walk, you always need to measure it against what we would get from the Spirit Himself. And again, what does the Spirit do? He helps us to understand the precious Word of God. So if you, are, if you believe you're being guided or directed to, to participate in some activity in your Christian walk, make sure it's in accordance with the Word of God because that's what the Spirit does is reveal the Word to us, right? He reveals the Word and helps us understand it. The Holy Spirit, excuse me, the Holy Spirit will never lead us in a way that's contrary to the Word of God. Let me say that a second time. The Holy Spirit will never lead us in a way that's contrary to the things of the Word of God. He will never do that. So when we behave in accordance with the Spirit, we are in effect behaving in accordance with the Word of God. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. The phrase, let us not become, is a hortatory, a subjunctive. We talked about this before. It's a fancy terminology that means it's an imperative that's given in such a way that the 
author is including himself in it. He's not saying to them, do not become boastful. In other words, directing the imperative towards them. He's including himself. And Paul likes to do that. He likes to include it, include himself in these things. Let us not become boastful. <clears throat> uh, that's what I was just saying. By using this form of command, Paul includes himself with the recipients. The word for boastful is pinadoxos. It means conceited, arrogant, or boastful. And we're going to translate it as arrogant. Because I believe, even though the word boastful is good from the standpoint of an outward expression of arrogance, I think that that's implicit in the rest of what's being said here. And I think that what he's really emphasizing in the first part is really the mental attitude sin. Not necessarily the outward expression, but the mental attitude sin itself, arrogance. Let us not become arrogant. That's what he's saying here. And then he goes on to the outward expression of those things with challenging one another, envying one another. word for challenging is prokaleo. Prokaleo means challenge or provoke. <clears throat> this word means to call someone out. So we're going to actually translate it as provoking. In other words, you're doing something as a provocation. You're provoking someone, trying to get a response. My wife will tell you that I do things playfully, trying to uh, elicit a response from her. Uh, sometimes she doesn't appreciate that playfulness, but that's another story. Uh, but I, I am, am very given to that, to try to do or say things in such a way that I can get her to respond. I've told you about the, the one that I did for a long time, so I would... I would uh, when I would put my, I like cream and sugar in my coffee, sorry, I don't drink it black like the military guys do, but, uh, so I put cream and sugar in my coffee, and I, and, and when I would be stirring that up, I would take my spoon, and I would sit there, and I would ding the cup, and I would just sit there and do it, and do it, and do it, until she said something, right, I mean, I would sit there for two minutes if I needed to, whatever it was, until she said something, so, so she, she got tired of me doing all that. So what did she do? She got me a wooden spoon. So I can't make the noise anymore. She fixed that problem. So I can still sit there and try to do it, but it doesn't make any noise anymore. But I, this is, this is, that's playful. I'm just being playful. This is not playful. This is trying to provoke someone. You're trying to get some sort of a response from them. You're trying to provoke them. We're going to actually translate it that way as provoking one another. Provoking one another. Doing things to bring about a response from the other individual. And typically you're not looking for a positive response either. Um, and then envying one another. I didn't highlight envying one another because you kind of know what that means. Envying one another, right? The idea that you look at the other people and you consider what they have and you have envy for them, either what they have or who they are, or whatever it might be. You have envy for one another. Well, rather than move on into our principles, which we have a, a, a list of them, uh, we're going to spend some time looking at these principles. Rather than moving on into that, we're going to go ahead and stop right here, and we'll get to that next time. We'll start looking at the principles on Wednesday night, Lord willing. Let's go ahead and stop right here for now. Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us to get through the remainder of our Translation of this section, it's a powerful, wonderful 
uh, section of the book of Galatians, and we're thankful that we had the opportunity to complete this this morning. We ask that you would help us to dwell on what we've learned today, help us to think about all the, the different concepts that are associated with these, these precious passages. And Father, as we consider how we are to function in our daily lives as believers, your word makes it very clear that we are to allow you to be at work in our lives. We are to yield in humility, yield to the Holy Spirit whom you've given us and allow him to, to have sway, to be under his control, to allow the fruit of the Spirit to be produced in us. And so help us to be recognizing the idea that if we, if we attempt to try to live a victorious Christian life in the energy of the flesh, we will not succeed. That is not what this section is about. It's not about us trying to force ourselves to exhibit the qualities that have been described here. Instead, it's about allowing you to be at work in us to produce these things. And Father, that's the, the most amazing message from your word is not only in our salvation, is it a matter of what you have done and the salvation that we have through faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior, but you have also provided us a walk, a means of living that's all about your power working in us and your, your wisdom, which you give us. Uh, we are blessed to live a life in such a way and help us to realize that, that the provision that you've made is more than, more than sufficient. You've designed an abundant life for us and help us more and more each and every day to recognize that human effort is not going to get it done. We have to rely upon you and all that you've provided. Father, we thank you for all these things. In the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.